afternoon with Dennis Fithian on Detroit Sports, ready to get things underway. Pod number 25. Coming up, my feelings on Drew Brees and his apology for saying he would never agree with anybody disrespecting the flag. Also, I'll talk with a former Michigan captain 30 minutes from right now. You won't want to miss that. But you also won't want to miss our first guest. He's covered college football, recruiting for rivals for decades. That's Josh Humholt, who is on the podcast. Josh, thanks for joining me. How are you? Hey, always good to be with you, my friend. Yeah, so what's it been like here these uh, these last couple of weeks, last couple of months? Uh, I was just talking with you. You're saying, uh, man, you, you miss getting out there and getting on the road. I do. That, that doesn't mean there hasn't been work. Uh, recruiting has been the only game in town for a long time. So we've had quite a bit to do, and the recruits just keep feeding us new stuff because the the wave of prospects making their commitments to college programs has been bigger than any spring I've covered. And that is due directly to uh, what's going on in recruiting with the dead period and kids not being able to visit and spots being snapped up and other kids getting nervous and wanting to snap up their own spots and yeah, it's really been an interesting spring, and they're, I'm very interested to see the repercussions down the road, particularly uh, whether this COVID commitment wave is mirrored by a COVID decommitment wave about mm. four, five, six month, months from now. Yeah, you know, everything's different, so it, it makes sense that you know it would be different, the recruiting phases and, and just how it would play out. It, it, I could see, you know, if, if you're stuck at home, you can't get out there and you, you can't work out and you're just talking with coaches and, and in, you know, Zooms and, you know, talking with him, talking with them on the phone, you know, that, you know, it's, it's still a connection, but it's not actually seeing in person. So it kind of makes sense that, uh, you know, you'd see some, whether you call it cold feet or whatever, trying to jump at and make, making sure they get their spot. And that wasn't the expectation I had coming in. I figured, most guys would hold off until those visits uh, became, uh, you know, available again. But when the, the dead period kept getting extended and kept getting pushed out, there, you know, these guys want no. They, they there's only a certain window of time that they can accept certain scholarship offers, and they jumped at them. And I also had a parent of he has a, a son playing professional football and a son in the current 2021 class, and he told me the difference between the two recruitments that he sees, especially in this moment right now, is the coaches are putting a lot more pressure on these kids right in this 2021 class to commit. So the pressure has been ramped up from college coaches to make commitments, even though, like, as you noted, they can't get out, they can't see the school. So uh, it's going to be an interesting next few months, and, and hopefully we will not have an early signing period. I think that would just, without being paired with an early official visit period, that's too big of a burden to put on kids. And uh, I think we need to push this out and have that go back at least for this year, for this 2021 class to that, just that February, March signing period. Yeah. Give us uh, a feel for that. Like, so kids, you know, they, they take two, three, what can they, I don't know, five visits. And if they didn't get those, those visits in, did you find that kids that are committing, like if they took a visit uh, or, or two visits, I mean, the, those are the schools that they went to, or are there kids that are, are, are committing that didn't take visits at all to a school and, and, and yet still, or is it, 
you see a higher percentage of, of kids that, you know, actually vis- visited the school that are, are making the commitment here in this, uh, you know, in this period of uncertainty. Yeah, you've got a lot of guys that have never seen the school they're committing to. I wrote a I wrote an article earlier this week on a four-star kid, kid out, kid out of Indianapolis, and he had narrowed his list to final six schools. He's only visited one of those six schools. So, And, and you've got P.J. Fleck has kind of been the master at it. He has gotten a number of commitments from prospects who have never visited Minneapolis. And it's happening it's it's widespread. It's it's surprising. It's not the way recruiting has been done in the past. It kind of goes against logic. Obviously, you know you want to see a place before making you know making sure that you're going to be comfortable there before uh, uh, pledging the next four years of your college career to it. But that's not what we've seen. So I, I think, like I said, I expect um, um, a bounce back, a repercussion. You know, something to kind of mirror what's going on now that sees a lot of these guys change their their plans, change their minds. You're going to have a lot of uh, schools coming in trying to help them change their minds. I think we'll see a lot of that type of recruiting going down. Uh, and it's, it's definitely going to be a very difficult senior year for a lot of these guys. Very stressful. Um, and, and I think that's part of what I, you know, what I was saying. They need to extend this uh, recruiting process and, and not have the early signing period this year. PJ Fleck could sell ice cubes to Eskimos. It sounds like, you know, from the way he works at it, what if there's, what if there's no high school football in the fall? Right? There, there could be, you know, it's all guessing, you know, all of it, like uh, there might not be anything, but you know, maybe there's going to be pro football, less likelihood that there would be college. Although, you know, we, Depending on uh, what area of the country you're in, people are a lot more confident than in others. And then you get to high school ball. It seems to be a lot more uncertainty there out of the three. What what if there isn't? Then that will cause a situation where there will be even more volatility because we've already lost the spring evaluation period. Now we've lost the summer camps where colleges obviously do a lot of their recruiting but really do – bulk of their evaluations too and and not just in this rising senior class but even more so in that rising junior class the summer before junior year is the most important summer in your high school recruitment and so we've lost that now if we lose a season as well you're talking about coaches putting scholarships on the line for kids they haven't seen since junior year of high school and won't get a chance to see because there is no more after this i mean senior season is kind of it maybe there'll be some um you know winter all-star games but those aren't those aren't going to tap into a large portion of of the population of the of the you know division one talent pool so if that's the case there's going to be a lot of volatility a kid that you put an offer out to you know kind of tentatively want to see how he grows he accepts that offer now you're going to have a lot of teams pulling offers and trying to put them with guys that they have a little bit better feel for. Um, it's going to be an interesting situation. And and honestly, it may help uh, bolster the, tra- the, the transfer portal and teams banking scholarships. They get 25 scholarships to use on initial qualifiers. And that's transfers, that's incoming freshmen, JUCO transfers, all of that. A kid that you just put on scholarship who was a walk-on before that. All of those count as initial qualifiers. You only get 25 of those 
if you're unsure about some, you know, a lot of these guys on the high school level that you're trying to recruit, you might bank more of those scholarships to be able to use for maybe a, a more proven college player. Interesting. Let's talk about some of the, the schools here in Michigan and how they're doing. Uh, Mel Tucker seemed like um, Mark D'Antonio left him between a rock and a hard place. That's uh, what it looked like when he retired. Uh, we know about the the kids that were there. They couldn't get out, but then, you know, he only had a short time to work with. But initially, uh, he was bringing in uh, a, a lot of players. Uh, he has. Uh, what are the kids saying about Tucker? How, how's he doing here? Yeah, so when, when I first heard, you know, before this whole shutdown happened was because they came in late, late for a first-year coach, middle of February, and that first spring is so important to get your, you know, get your – um, your game plan in place, get the kids acclimated to your program and your process. And, and that was so important that that was going to be where their, you know, a large bulk of their focus was instead of trying to juggle recruiting and spring football, that they were really going to, you know, really hammer down on spring football. Now, obviously the shutdown happens. You don't have any spring football. That's given his, his staff a chance to now put their recruiting game plan in place. They didn't pick up their first commitment until April 7th in this 2021 class, but they're already up to 10 commitments and they got all those guys in one month and not all those guys have visited. And I, and the vast majority have not visited while Mel Tucker was the head coach in East Lansing. So because there was only that two week period, it was, I think 13 day period from March 1st to March 13th that, prospects could visit campuses since Mel Tucker's been hired in East Lansing. So he's, here's what I'm hearing from a lot of the kids that are talking to them. When they went before, the atmosphere, the energy was down in East Lansing, and that's been rejuvenated. Mel Tucker has guys on his staff who are tremendous recruiters, who obviously Michigan State fans remember Harlan Barnett and how dynamic of a recruiter he is and how he opens up the state of Ohio, particularly Western Ohio and Southwest Ohio. Uh, he's on that staff. They got a lot of really good recruiters right now. It's a staff that has new energy, uh, new excitement, and the kids are buying into that. So it's not going to be, this isn't the class that you're going to win uh, a big 10 championship with, but it's the class that can build the foundation for those future classes that will allow you to do that. And I will, you know, he's hitting needs. He's getting solid players, and uh, you know, I think he's done a, a very good job considering, as you mentioned, the hand he was dealt, which is even for, you know even more difficult than most first-year coaches get hands. Yeah, I don't know how much it means when you look at social media, but I can tell just by just going through, you can see that he he definitely is uh, is making a mark there, wherever it's at, Twitter, all the way through. They they seem like they've got. You know, pretty good. You mentioned energy. You know, I, I can see that just by just by being a casual observer. You know, the one thing I, I read, I'm not exactly sure which writer, somebody that covers Michigan State, uh, they were talking about that that Tucker was interested in guys that had size to them. And you know, like, um, and then I, I looked at the at the one point in April. I think they had ten recruits, and I'm looking, you know, six five, six seven, I, and I thought it was just an interesting. I, I'd never. A herd of a coach. I mean, I, there's probably all kinds of markers that you're looking for. Like, yeah, we want you know this certain, you know, type of player. Or, but it, 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 if that was the case, you you certainly could look at the just talking about the height of these guys. Uh, they all seem like um, you know that is something that that 
that he was going for. Uh, did you see that? Uh, have you heard that? And th- that? I found that interesting. Yeah, well, first-year coaches are looking at their roster and finding out, where am I light? Where am I weak? What areas do – Lovie Smith went into Illinois and immediately said, we are not fast enough. We need to recruit speed and started recruiting in Texas and Florida heavily because he, he saw – uh, and uh, you know, uh, a, a void of speed on his team. So, uh, th- you know, that's that's likely the same situation here with Tucker. Just seeing that, hey, we don't obviously. Anytime you have a scheme change, that's going to create holes in your roster. Uh, you know, and and so you need to recruit to fill those holes. Even small scheme changes. You look at Nick Rolovich coming in for Mike Leach. You know, going from the air raid to the run and shoot up there in Washington State. You know, those both of them pass a lot, but they're actually very you know different offenses that require some different types of athletes and so that's what you're seeing here is your initial guys the initial things you're going to do and a lot of first year head coaches uh, are able to use the last month or two months of the the incoming freshman class that they get hired you know if you get hired normally in december or maybe early january you get some time to be able to recruit some guys and fill those holes well he's got to fill these holes with rising high school seniors and so that's, you know, you look at your roster, you find out where those holes are and recruit to them. Yeah, yeah. As I was listening to you talk there, I remember Rich Rodriguez. He was coming into Michigan. He was looking for smaller, quicker offensive linemen. A number of receivers, uh, skilled players also seemed to fit that uh, bill too. Smaller, quicker players rather than, you know, larger, like, you know, Big Ten, like you would say, you know, in the past, typical Big Ten offensive linemen. So, yeah, I mean, Rodriguez definitely re- recruiting that way when he came in. Remember that part. That's for sure. Yeah, a bunch of 5'8", 160-pound wide receiver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, well, um, how's Jim Harbaugh doing uh, when it comes to where Michigan's sitting right now here in you know, the, the early part of June? You know, with Chris Partridge leaving the staff going down to Ole Miss, I really thought, because Chris Partridge was that New Jersey connection, and he was – you know, headed up that recruiting department for a long time and, you know, brought in some other uh, coaches from the, the East Coast there. I thought Michigan's focus would change. They spent so much time recruiting the East Coast that uh, they spent more time recruiting the East Coast than they have spent recruiting their own state. Last year, I think they had five commitments uh, total, uh, four commitments from the uh, in-state and one from the rest of the Midwest. I thought that would change, and honestly, we're not seen a ton of it they have as many commitments right now from massachusetts as they do from michigan mm. so it's a really an interesting mix again i i just the question i have with this is you know and and, and because it goes back to what i said about how to build a class as i've watched classes be built the most successful ones the ones that lead to wins on the field and championships uh, in your trophy case are the ones that you know build off you start with your backyard talent. Those are the guys that understand your traditions, have grown up around your program, probably grow up, you know, dreaming about playing for it. Just means a little bit more to them. But also, they know what it means. You know, they know what your traditions mean. They can give you that that base in your locker room, and then you go cherry pick the top prospects from around the country. Um, but they've got guys like I said, Massachusetts. They just popped a couple of commitments from from Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's just a it's an interesting mix, and and I don't know how that's going to play out. Started, you know, the the beginning of this class, particularly Giovanni Elhadi over there from Sterling Heights, Michigan, and then the big quarterback JJ McCarthy from Chicago. Those guys are 
um, just big timers and a really strong base of the class, but not enough of a base to be able to then not, you know, surround them with other guys. Uh, there's so much talent in the state of Michigan. Uh, there more than I've seen in, in 17 years of covering it. These last three classes have been uh, the most talented I've covered in the state of Michigan. Uh, but Michigan, the University of Michigan, uh, does not seem to see it that way. They're not pushing for a lot of these guys, and they're taking who we have rated as lesser talented guys from other regions of the country. Interesting. You know, that was the direction I was going to go, asking you what the state looked like. You, you mentioned the one player there. I is it one of these things where these guys, um, you know, have Michigan on their list or Michigan State, but they're just not they're, – they're wanting to let this process uh, play out a little bit? Because that seems like uh, – like I would think that if we had Jim Harbaugh on the line, he would say, yeah, you know, we want to make sure that we keep our guys home as well. So uh, anything else on that when you look at the uh, at the state, uh, just the, the particular players, the, the top guys wanting to take their time or something? No, I mean, you've got uh... – I mean, in this particular class, you do have some guys taking their time. Uh, Damon Payne uh, is a guy that probably takes it out is, is, you know, late in the process. Rocco Spindler, mm-hmm. uh, the Clarkston, is is going to be uh, – he's going to take his official visits before he makes the decision. Same probably with Donovan Edwards or the West Bloomfield. These are three of the top four players in the state. And, and Michigan, you know, Michigan's – the state has – Michigan has five players in the top 100 nationally. You just – you don't see those things very often. It's a really unique class. And Michigan's got commitments from Giovanni Ohadi, uh, Raheem Anderson, another four-star. But that's about it. I, I think they got one other commitment um, you know, from the state is, is the kicker. So, I mean, three commitments from the state in a class that's already up to 17 commitments, that's unusual. That's definitely not what you would think would be the case in a year where Michigan has five guys in the top 100 and somewhere around 12 four-star prospects. It's 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 more how Michigan is recruiting them, I think, than how uh, they feel about it. not not individual guys, but just as a group. You know, Michigan just doesn't go after some of these guys hard enough, and um, you know they go elsewhere because other teams are showing them love. I mean, I've had them tell me that many times. I've had high school coaches tell me that you know other other teams care more about my guys than you know the in-state schools do, and and now. I think that's changing a little bit with Mel Tucker up at, in the Lansing, uh, but certainly that wasn't just unique to Michigan, really. I mean, Michigan State for the last few classes has, had also really kind of not put the effort in that some of these out-of-state schools had, and that's why you saw a lot of out-of-state or a lot of out-of-state teams come in and snap up, you know, state of Michigan talent. Yeah, I think we see it right around the corner here with uh, with West Bloomfield. You know, Ron Bellamy, a, a guy that went to Michigan uh, all the time. You're you're seeing uh, different schools come in there, and I know you know just talking with people that that follow that program, they would always ask me, "How come Michigan, you know, is not able to keep any of these guys uh, home?" I'm, I I don't know, I, I don't know why this other schools are coming in and uh, and going harder after their players. Yeah, and that's been the case for a few years, and and um, I guess the response or the the kind of the mindset is is that. Um, you know, Michigan doesn't see these players as highly valued or as highly as we have them rated. But <laughs> yeah, that that would be my only explanation to it. Because I, I mean, listen, if you got a, if you got equal talented guys, one's in your backyard and one's out in Massachusetts, wouldn't you take the guy in your backyard first? Yes. So um, obviously, they have a different uh, they have a different recruiting board. 
You know what? The one that I've been following the, the closest is because uh, we all know his dad, uh, Mark Spindler, who, who played for the Lions and then, you know, still leaves, lives here at Michigan. And, and Rocco Spindler, just seeing, man, uh, you just look at a, a lineman there and, and the name Rocco, man, this guy, he is, uh, he is built to play football here. I follow this recruitment. You can see with his, you know, his dad's input here. You know, Rocco's his own guy here, and 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 setting up his visits, and it's just really hard to get a read. You know, I talk with some people, and they're like, "Oh yeah, Michigan's got a great chance," but you you just know whether it's Notre Dame, Penn State, he goes out there, whether he's visiting them or whether he has visited them. Man, he sure seems like he's uh, taking it all in and 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 going with the best fit, and it'll come down to the end. But I. I just have a hard time, you know, getting a read on where he might go. What about you? Yeah, I mean, for the most of this recruitment, I think people have tabbed it, and I believe rightfully so, as a Michigan-Notre Dame battle. Uh, but as this recruitment goes on longer, that's going to open it up for more schools. I know Penn State has really felt good about the response that they've gotten from Rocco here during this, you know, kind of quarantine shutdown period. And they feel like they're making a run at these kind of top two schools. I, I do think Michigan and Notre Dame are the are the two at the top, and then you look at an Ohio State and the Penn State and an LSU and these other schools that he's still considering, and they're going to have their chances as long as he sticks to his current game plan and and takes an official visits. I mean, it only takes one. We've seen this hundreds of times. One official visit can turn an entire recruitment around. And while Michigan and Notre Dame are, are probably the, the two big hitters at the top right now, still uh, that's as long as he takes this into senior year, takes his official visits, any one of those five schools is a possibility. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the Mid-American Conference schools here. you got Western, you got Jim McElwain up at Central, Chris Creighton. The, uh, Eastern continues to uh, at least make a name for themselves where they hadn't done that in, in years past, whether it's uh, just bowl games and they seem like they got a good one in Creighton. Are, are you seeing that from uh, the kids that you talk with, the, the the name Creighton or Eastern or, you know, Central and Mount Pleasant coming up a little bit more often here? Well, Central's gotten quite a few commitments here recently, and, and they do a good job recruiting in the state. Uh, they always recruit the state hard. Um, it, honestly, it, it, as you look at it right now, when you look across the MAC, it's, uh, Toledo and, and Miami of Ohio who are really dominating recruiting at this point. In fact, both of them at different points have been ranked among the top 30 classes in the country, no matter, you know, that, that includes the SEC and Big Ten and all of those classes. So, um, you know, you've got a couple of teams really taking advantage of the situation. And then after that, you've got Western Michigan, Central Michigan, kind of in that next tier where they're really going after um, – you know, and both of them recruit very well in state, but all throughout the Midwest. Western does a very good job in in Chicago area, and has always recruited well over there. And then kind of all the way up the, um, you know, around you know South Bend and that that area down in Indiana, and then up up through uh, Wisconsin, they always recruit well there. And Central kind of takes the the other side of the state, and they do a lot better, you know, on the eastern side of Michigan, going into you know. Um, that down river area and getting into Ohio, uh, they'll, they'll branch out to the East coast a little bit too, and, and get some guys, but really for the bulk of their classes, uh, you know, they, they recruit really well in the state of Michigan. Josh, you know, the final thing I wanted to ask you, I'll take you back to the, the big 10 and, 
there hasn't been a lot of positive signs on the field when it comes down to seeing if you can overtake Ohio State, whether you're Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, and specifically Michigan here. We know uh, what has happened on the field here for the for the past few years. And then last year with Ryan Day coming in and Michigan having the home game and, and also having a returning starting quarterback, it seemed like it was kind of now or never. When you look at um, how recruiting has gone, I – Myself just has glanced at it a few times, and I just see Ohio State's name next to the the big time recruits all the way through there. I see a little bit of Penn State, see uh, Michigan there on one, maybe Maryland on one, but man, Ohio State, uh, whether they're if they're if it was a a huge gap, it seems like it it stayed there with Day uh, and the recruiting here. And whether this is the early going, however you put it, is is that is that true? Yeah, I mean, right now Ohio State's lapping the field. Anybody, you know, across the Big Ten thinking they're they're closing the gap, it's not being done in the the talent department. <laughs> Ohio State has a class right now where we are barely into the month of June, and if they if they were to sign their class and stop right now, this would have this class would have ranked top ten just based on points, just based on you know the 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 quality of the class. This would would be a top five class in each of the last five years. That's how good this class is. They're running away. They're the number one class in the country right now, and they are way ahead of everybody else, including everybody else in the Big Ten. Michigan right now is the second-best class in the Big Ten. They're over 1,000 points behind Ohio State, even though uh, they've only got two less commitments. So it's, it's going to be very difficult for teams across the Big Ten to, you know, tap into that that Ohio State uh, uh, dominance of the of the conference if they don't start catching them on the recruiting trail and right now uh, I don't see how it's going to happen it's they're they're just a machine like you mentioned that keeps rolling mm. well you're a machine that keeps rolling I know you've been doing this for a long time itching to get back out there and actually get on the field and evaluate and you know talk to some players uh, hopefully you're going to be able to do that when you when you do I'd like to catch back up with you and I don't know if that's going to be over the next month or two maybe uh, that'll happen and uh, we'll be able to get you back on here but in the meantime you know it's uh, it's it's all there online for people to see right all, always on rivals we're, we're there 24 7 all, all all the time 365 days a year so yeah we're, we're there uh we, and we've been busy this past couple of months. There's been a lot to report on. Well, you do a great job, and you've been doing it for, for years. And, uh, you know, I love your work. So continued success there. Always great catching up with you. And like I said, hopefully we'll be able to do it again, whether it's uh, here in the spring or, you know, summer right around the corner here in just a couple of weeks. Hey, you're one of my oldest friends in the business, and I uh, always enjoy chatting with you, Dennis. Hey, thanks, Josh. And uh, we will talk with you again pretty soon. Take care. You too. Thanks for coming on. Josh Hemholt from Rivals here uh, joining me, and it is great to talk with him, and I will definitely uh, do that again. If you ever have any questions about recruiting or anything that you always and he wanted to know from somebody uh, who does it, just uh, you know, get a hold of me, whether it's through Facebook or, or Twitter. Send me a message. Before we get to uh, our next guest, I wanted to get to uh, Drew Brees' controversy. No doubt that's what, what this is, Brees. When it it came down to yesterday, and and what he had to say, and he had to come back today saying he completely missed the mark in his comments on the flag. It was an apology today for comments on disrespecting the flag, saying he 
completely missed that mark and said he never agreed. This was on Wednesday with Yahoo saying he never agreed with anybody disrespecting the flag. This is the top story. And, you know, for me, it is a controversy. You know, Breeze could have said that's what he said. And he could have just backed up and said, look, that's my opinion. You know, I I love this country and uh, I love my teammates, but I'm going to stay with my opinion on the flag. And yet less than 24 hours later, I know that a lot of uh, his black teammates, athletes, athletes from around the league, weighing in and and calling him out, and then he came back and when you say reverse field, I mean he apologized and he's getting a lot of now uh, backlash from people that's like you don't have anything to apologize for. But for me, you know, the whole point of the protests in the wake of George Floyd's death was to look at police brutality and try to empathize and, and look at it from a black person's standpoint. And of course, Colin Kaepernick was going to be uh, brought into this from, you know, three, four years ago in the protest uh, and, and what that was about. And, and it's still finding it being a little confusing for people that that protest was about shining the light on this very situation. Uh, does it mean that, that Breeze and, and Kaepernick, you know, hate the police um and and military or is is this a protest you know i i just remember myself uh, it, the the Kaepernick situation happened on a friday and i woke up uh you know it was a it was a you know exhibition game and saturday morning i saw it i was on at two o'clock so i had to go through it and without just i just watched the situation and said look i just got to come up with uh you know, my, my own opinion here. And I thought, you know what, this is a deal breaker. That was my first reaction. Like, just go to another country. You know, I love the U.S. And, you know, this is this. There's a few things that you just don't, you know, don't disrespect the military uh, that died or served that day uh, or, or died or served. But, you know, that day for for four hours, I listened to people and it, it changed my feeling. You know, uh, I can love the anthem. And yes, I can respect the police and the job they do and, and uh, under, you know, I, I, but, you know, I can also, just like with Kaepernick, I, so, you know, I don't have to like the pig socks and a t-shirt of Castro and his explanation of, you know, it was Malcolm X. And, you know, what is needed here is an attempt to, to understand, you know, we're, we're divided in so many ways. And, you know, this is another situation where people are lining up on each side. I find somebody that's able to go back and apologize and look at this is, is not weak, but actually strong here. Try to see the other side. I mean, you can love Obama. Can you ever consider anything Trump does as positive or vice versa? You know, it becomes predictable. I, I don't see many people doing that. Breeze didn't have to apologize. But uh, let's listen and, uh, and, and why he did. And that's where I'm at with it. A lot more talking about that. Well, right now, let's get to a former Michigan football player, former Michigan captain, who is going to uh, join us here, and we will connect with him. Uh, Let me just call him up. Let's hit the phone, and let's go to it. I'm ringing it. Mr. Dennis, how are you? John Arbesnik is on the line, played for, for Michigan, uh, 76 to 79. How are you doing, sir? I, I know that uh, talking to you yesterday, you're getting a lot of rain down there, right? 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. I had to move inside because, uh, you know, it, it, we've had 28 inches of rain in the last, uh, well, I don't know, about 30 hours. And uh, I didn't know you, I didn't know that was possible, you know? <laughs> no, that almost sounds like, you know, uh, three, four inches of rain is a lot. You're talking about uh, a, a heck of a lot more, man. That, that's got to be uh, that's got to be quite the situation. Well, the good news is it's up my weekend because see what I do. I play a lot of golf on Saturdays and Sundays. And, uh, you know, a week ago we had 10 inches. So we've got over 30 in a little more than nine or 10 days, which is unbelievable. But uh, every golf course is flooded. I mean, there's it's uh, my backyard when I was talking to you. Uh, and we live on the intercoastal, so it drains out into the ocean. Uh, and it wasn't draining for a while, you know. <laughs> so, so it, it, they did clear the, you know, the end of the intercoastal. So, but and thank goodness we live uh, in, in an area like that. I've never seen anything like it. It's crazy. It's just great nuts down here. Yeah. Well, you know what? I haven't seen anything like the last couple months uh, in the country from uh, from everything that's going on here. You know, we just, and it's always great, you know, talking football. But man, we got. Uh, yeah, you know, we've got the pandemic, and now we've we've got these protests, and and this is this is just a time here in 2020, man. We're just uh, it, uh, I know that was just talking about the weather, but man, this is uh, this is definitely a different time that we're in right now. Yeah, you know, that's a great comment because you know, first of all, we're all concerned about the coronavirus, and then of course, uh, you know, we have the the, the police action, you know, rear thug we had again, and and. Uh, and, and it's almost like the coronavirus didn't matter, you know? Yeah. And, and then then you go to now. I mean, what we're doing in Florida, and it's like, you know, we're so – it's up to the moment. It's just, It's been going on all year. Uh, it, it gets to the point where, you know, is there ever going to be a just a, you know, a time? But it's probably because it's an election year, and that probably heightens everything. But uh, we need to get back to, 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 you know, just thinking about football again. And, and the first thing I do is put on Paul Pinebaum today, who's uh, – you know, one of my favorite shows down here. And he announces five, five Alabama players tested positive this morning for coronavirus. Mm. Uh, and, and, and then I understand that it happened also at Marshall. Uh, Florida State's having issues with their coach right now over uh, – and it's like it's, it, it, you're trying to even restart a season like we're going to do down here in Florida. It, it, it's, it's just like no matter where we turn, you know, this whole year is just like everything we do. We can't we can't gain progress in anything. You know, whether it's the the disease, whether it's the football, whether it's the you know the, the race relations. It, it's almost like it's like this is just the worst year ever for everything. I guess is what you said. Yeah, well, John, you Especially know the yeah the one part is you know we we like even though it's unfolding and in and it's just in its uh, beginning stages right now. You mentioned all those different things that are that are going on. Mm-hmm. We don't know if there will be a season, but it's still, I don't know, it's still comforting and fun to, to talk about football. Like, you know, just uh, even if it doesn't happen and we don't know. So, and you know, somebody that, you know, played at Michigan, I know you have a lot of opinions and uh, you know, you like talking about the, the Wolverines too. And let's jump into a little bit of that when you, you just yeah. look at this team, if there's going to be a, a 2020 season and the players and coaches, you have some things that you find uh, encouraging when you look at it. Well, it's kind of, you know, what's really interesting is I got, you know, kind of involved with the program, obviously when uh, uh, Dave Brandon was the athletic director and, uh, and myself and a few other teammates from the old days uh, from our championship years that played for Bo, 
you know, we didn't know we weren't, we were questioning leadership that we had at that position of athletic director and, and some of the selections he made as coaches, not that they're not great, great uh, guys. And I think, uh, I think, you know, Rich Rod and, uh, and Brady Hoke are two great, great football coaches. I, I just didn't think, you know, I, I think that at the time, I think Rich Rodriguez was one of the best offensive coordinators in the country. I think he, he but he wasn't good at defense, you know? No. And I, and I think that, uh, with Brandon staring down Brady Hoke's, you know, every time he made a move, he, he had to go to film sessions with an athletic director. I don't think Brady ever had a fair chance, uh, number one. And then what we did was we eliminated, uh, you know, we got together. Uh, we met with regents uh, and uh, voiced our opinions, and, and they listened. And, uh, and and they realized that, you know, when you fire 100 people in the athletic department, you know, and, and you bring in another 150, which is what Dave did, and and actually he was supposed to cut the size because they went with IMG, which was supposed to do most of their managing for them, and the contract that Bill Martin negotiated. We're looking at it, and a lot of our friends got fired. So we did – we went, I went on ESPN radio in uh, kind of a semi-famous interview because uh, I certainly uh, didn't want to be in that role to do that. But uh, And then I went on SportsCenter, and at the end, uh, we were able to have Jimmy Hackett as interim, and then we bought in Ward, who I feel is the best athletic director in America. I have uh, a huge, huge uh, fan of Ward Manuel. I think he... Uh, he positions that athletic department to greatness. He's got a baseball team that played in the national championship. As a matter of fact, that game's on tonight, guys. It's 7 o'clock if you want to watch the final against uh, Vanderbilt last night. Mm-hmm. Um, on the SPN, I just saw that on TV. And then what we did, we positioned ourselves. And then and what's been befuddling us after that, you know, we have Jimmy and, and as coach. You know, we just can't seem to get on the right track. And I think there's been a progression. I think there, when Jim first took the job, I think there was, you know, first of all, a lot of money was thrown out there. And I know Jim didn't want all that money. And Jim even said that he only wanted to work for his 49er salary, you know, which, which was seven times five million. And, and they had offered him 48 in a package. And I think what happened was a lot of the coaches that came in, like uh, Tim Drebno was at the USC. He was, he, he was being paid over $2 million a year as a coordinator. And, you know, I think, you know, when you, when you start paying coaches that much money, I, I think what happens, uh, unless they've earned it, unless they've, you know, won championships for you, you know, like Dabo Sweeney and, and Nick Saban and, and the such, you know, and, and Jim not making that money, believe it or not, his base salary is, is, is it's, uh, you notice it's only like a half million dollars, but it's probably about six or seven. I don't know. But, um, when assistants are making two million a year, that's a problem. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, to your point there, it's like if, however, you look at the money, you say, hey, it's it, you know, it's it's not my money. What's that really matter? You know, there's no salary cap. But I do just think whether it's your average fan or, or big time fan, you're going to look and say, all right, yeah, you see Nick Saban, you see Davo Sweeney's name, and you see Jim Harbaugh's name up there pretty high when it talks about you know annual compensation package, and you're saying, hey. Uh, you know, with that, you'd like to see some uh, a, a trip to Indy, uh, you know, a Big Ten championship, some wins over yeah. Ohio State. I mean, all, all of those things that that go along with it. And, uh, you know, I know you like uh, I was just looking at, you know, the, the years that you played and, you know, you 
won some Big Ten championships. And it's just been, if you'd have told me 15, 16 years ago that it was going to be that long of a drought, I'd have said, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to buy that. Not, you know, Michigan will figure it out. But, you know, they have not, and Ohio State's continued to get stronger. Well, I tell you, none of us believe it, and that's part of the reason a lot of the old guys got back involved, you know, along with me. And and uh, and the, the opinions were universal. I mean, you know, when you're playing on a team that has 42 Big Ten banners, and yet the last one that was raised was in two, uh, 24, so it's been a 16-year drought. And uh, and then, of course, with the, you know, the with Rich Rodriguez and Brady Hope and the Dave Brandon thing, so that basically moves you through what? What's that, nine years, ten yeah. years? Yep. At the end of Lloyd's career and then into that. And then, then you go into uh, Jim the Savior. And uh, <laughs> no doubt, you know, everyone's excited. Jimmy's coming in. Uh, I personally, you know, I've always respected Jim. I, I didn't believe he was available because he had a year in his contract with the 49ers. I think that general manager, Trent Balky, released him from it. And, uh, and, and I was surprised that he was in the pool because a lot of us were going after Les Miles. And I, I certainly don't want to go into a controversy about the two because when we found out Jim was available, most of them wanted Jim, uh, just so you know that. And I think what's happened is I think he's I, – I, I, I'm not saying they're feeling their way. They certainly had a great first year, remember? I mean, they, they came yeah. right out of the ball. They were loving games. They had uh, – it looked like it was hell on wheels, that Ohio State game. I believe in 20 – would have been 15, right, where uh, – where we, we, we basically got 2016, the, the call. 2016 you know, was uh, the JT Barrett, yep. Yeah, that was where we, I thought we won that game in Columbus. Uh, you know, and, and I thought everything was going great then. And then what's failed to happen, I think in the South Carolina game, if I recall, was when a lot of us got kind of upset, is that it didn't seem the team, you know, after the end of the bowl game, it's like they didn't care, you know. And then, of course, in the Orange Bowl, with a couple of players didn't want to play. You know, and uh, I think Peppers is one of them. And, and of course, uh, you can't blame them in a way because of the money they pay today. And that, but then you look at our tight end that tore his knee, you know, in that game. So, you know, I, I don't know what the answers are on this, but I, I don't see this. It's not like we were where we were, we were perpetual uh, uh, champions of the Big Ten, uh, fighting for national championships. We played in one against. Oklahoma in 76 for the national championship in the bicentennial game, which we were told before the game it was. And then, of course, 78 Rose Bowl against USC. And, and that's who we were. We were an elite program. Uh, these guys hasn't, haven't made that stamp yet. And I don't know, you know, if I wanted to put it together, it's almost like they don't make statements as a team. I think they're a collection of individuals in a lot of cases. I know that Jim's trying to change that. And I think that, um, you know, a team that goes together, a team, a team wins championships. You, you can't do it by, you know, individual players. And, and uh, that is the, the great quandary. But, of course, this year we're supposed to be great. Uh, the coaching staff certainly a bit upgraded with Brian, Brian Jean Mary, who's a you know, great linebacker coach, uh, former defensive coordinator out of, uh, out of South Florida, uh, the USF uh, uh uh, bowls, and then we got Bob Shoup came in. Now Bob Shoup's a great coach. Now he, he followed Jane Franklin around from Virginia, from uh, Vanderbilt to Penn State. Then he went to Mississippi State with Dan Mullen. This guy's a heck of a football coach, and uh, he's going to coach our safety, which has been a problem. 
Yeah. Because you notice what happened to Wilson RPO. And I, I think I'm so excited about this season because I think this is the year, the year that Jim reverses it. I think we got Dylan McCaffrey that's going to be playing a lot or starting a quarterback. I, I just feel that everything's right. And then what happens to us is we get hit by this coronavirus, you know, everything that's happened. And it, it's almost like, you know, now we don't even know there's a season. So how can you get mentally prepared for something that may or may not happen? Dennis, that's, no, that's no, I hear you with that. You know, it's interesting. We talk about the RPOs and, you know, getting a, a safety coach in there. And, you know, Don Brown, what have you seen from, from the schemes? He seems like he's had some personnel to work with and these big games, whether it's been the RPOs, uh, depth on the D line. What, what do you see from that scheme? Do you think that, you know, he's willing, it, it looked like last year towards the end that he was, willing to uh, change some things up. It wasn't like, no, we're, we're going to, you're going to stay with this aggressiveness uh, no matter what, you know, he did look like he mixed it up. And now with, you know, some new coaches there, maybe um, what, what do you see with that scheme and the possibility? Well, I, I think it's, it's a, first of all, I'm glad that they're all getting along. Number one, because uh, typically if you look at Don Brown and look at his career as a defensive coordinator, I mean, 85% of the time, he's probably the best coordinator in the country. His problem has been two games at the end of the season at, uh, and occasionally one up in, uh, you know, up in uh, Camp Randall, uh, in the middle of the season where it almost looked like we didn't know what we we're doing. And, and I, you know, I had an interesting conversation because I talked, you know, when I played in Michigan, you know, we had, you know, so many All Americans and great ones, but we had a lot of NFL great secondary guys. And one of them is Dwight Hicks, who's, you know, one of my best friends. He played for the 49ers in those Super Bowls with Joe Montana, and he's got a you know collection of rings from the 49ers. And he he said he asked me the same question about you know but what about with, with Brian Gene uh, uh, Gene Mary and, and Bobby Shue coming in, you know how they're going to get along with Don? And it appears that thing went fine because it's not like he had the fire. You don't want to fire Don Brown. Don Brown is a great great football coach. He really is. But I think he needed more help, the lack of a better word. And I, I think they found some help for him because, you know, uh, you know, if you think about it, you know, Don's a, he's a cover one guy, you know, he's a blitz guy. Okay. Yeah. And when you get into the, the cover twos and when you start playing strong safeties in cover two, like Dwight Hicks told me last night, he says I could disguise two or three. They never knew where I was going and he'd run the line and then go back into coverage. He had some problems with the way they take on, uh, on, on receivers off the line of scrimmage. And particularly some of the strong safeties, and, and Dwight would love to go back and, and spend some time in camp and, and, and teach these guys how to how to slow down some of those routes that, that create the RPO, because those guys basically ran across the middle uh, unbridled. I mean, literally, you know, they're wide open. You see it, and you wonder, and you go, "Why can't we stop that?" Well, because we're in cover one. We're, they got two. They got two wide outs running down the field, and their corners are out of the way. You know, yeah. and what you got to do. Like Bill Schembecker played cover two, three, pretty much all the time, and you know two is your, you know your, your safety and your your uh, strong safety or free safety. You can rotate corners, and 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 and, uh, and you're gonna have you have to have two shutdown corners to play cover one or cover two. You really do because you can't let them beat you deep. Uh, when you go into cover two or cover one, cover two you get help, and the free safety can go and help out the corner. Uh, but you can disguise that. And then when you get into cover three, which is where you bring uh, the up position of the, the strong safety, and you can play him, and then you can have linebackers come up in the coverage. Uh, and, and, and the, you know, the absolute uh, sophistication of the modern defenses, I think, 
we weren't executing when it came to the great teams. Like that could run that RPO with perfect timing. And, and I don't know that we were, we, we were the tack. We would always hit, we'd give them those seven, eight yard RPOs and, and we'd play deep coverage. We'd let them have that middle all the time, but we would create, we would, Bo called it ringing doorbells. And I want my team flying around ringing doorbells, meaning he wanted a secondary to hit them in the first quarter. And second quarter, to the point where they got they got lazy arms in the fourth quarter, they're afraid to go across the middle. And that was the strategy of ours. I just don't see that. I don't see a lot of the. I, and I, I think that we, you know with the new coaches, it's, I think it's going to change. Well, can you ring the doorbells now in modern football, or you're setting yourself up for some targeting, or you know, do you have to change that a little bit more? Now, that's one of the things I think that's about. That's a great too. question, Danny. That's a great question too. But uh, obviously you can because we see how LSU uh, played defense last year and and Clemson and Alabama, they certainly don't seem to have much problem with RPO because they can, uh, you know, and, and a lot of that is linebackers and coverage too and actually, you know, assisting, you know, when they rotate out of, of cover two, three, or four. Yeah. So, so I think a lot of that, you could be in position. You don't have to, you know, it, it's almost like you just know it. I mean, do the point total. It's 120 plus points in the last two years against Ohio State. That's a systemic failure. Okay. That, you know, let's just see what it is. That's what it is. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, yeah. you know, John, people ask me about the, about the offense and, you know, how long it can go, defense too, everything. But, you know, when you just said LSU, I mean, Joe Burrow, I, I don't know if, if Dylan McCaffrey is going to be Joe Burrow. And, you know, Josh Gaddis did come in and, and, and looks like, you know, marrying things up with Ed Werner, the line coach, you know, the ideas, there's some, there's some promise there. But you, you, you do see, like, if you get the right system, you get the right quarterback. I mean, we saw it with LSU, just how great they look there. And again, I don't think I'm not comparing McCaffrey to, to Burrow, but I do like, you know, the, the, he just looks special, whether it's because his brother's, you know, great in the NFL or his, you know, or his dad or his grandfather, but you know, he flies when he has the football and he does look like there's some, some specialness there too. I'm talking about Dylan McCaffrey. Well, you know, I, I actually know the family because I, I lived out in Denver 15 years and I coached in uh, Tri-Valley League in Colorado. And I watched him. I watched Christian play. And, uh, you know, I tell you what, I, I never seen a kid that, you know, that talented. And uh, I knew his dad and mom. Uh, played golf with his dad a bunch of times in the Broncos alumni tournament. And, uh, you know, and I knew when the kids were just little kids. I knew Dylan when he was probably about, I don't know, four years old. And, you know, I'd see him around. I didn't, wasn't his friend or nothing, but he'd be with his dad and mom. And his mom was, a, you know, Olympic athlete herself. Uh, Dylan's special. Uh, not taking anything away from Joe Minton either. But Dylan is, I think, could be, I, I, I don't want to ever say the next Tom Brady, because obviously the NFL didn't even know what Tom Brady was when they drafted him, what, 190th or whatever in the, Last of the sixth round, sixth round yeah. but I think this kid, I think this kid's special. I think he got a great. I'm glad that Josh, uh, you know, Josh is now sharing the coordinator position with Ed Warner. Uh, and the last time Ed Warner was a was a coordinator, uh, he won the national championship at Ohio State, and I think that's really fair to note. Uh, I think he also should be applauded that Eddie Warner this year had an NFL record when he put four kids off the same line in the first six rounds of the NFL draft. That had never been done in the modern era. Yeah, impressive. So, and I'll tell you, you know, if, if Milton does ultimately beat him out, if they get to a, 
you know, a summer phase and, you know, they get to a, you know, fall camp and he beats him out. He must be a, a hell of a player. That's the way I look at it. What do you think the dynamic will be, you know, with those two, with Warner, more of a, more of a team that's running the ball? Do you think that's where it, it shows up? Is that something where because of uh, McCaffrey, you know, you'd look at him more as a, I say an option guy, but, but somebody, I mean, he can, I mean, you, you want him with the ball, you want him throwing it for sure, but you know he's also uh, appears to be a special talent. Is that where it's going to show up, or or Warner well, might know how to use that a little bit more in the RPOs or whatever? Well, if you remember, uh, uh, Dylan proved he could run the football very effectively, and you know his brothers was what led the NFL in total offense uh, last year between uh, catches and running. I believe he approached two thousand yards, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I know it's close to that. You're right. No, you're right uh, on that. He also is the highest paid uh, running back in NFL history as of his last contract, uh, just for the record. Uh, so that, that speaks volumes. Uh, I think that Joe, you know, Eddie runs the run game. So, Ed, you know, and, uh, and what Josh runs is the, the passing game. And so, like, if you want a receiver, like we're trying to recruit these kids out of Louisiana right now with the great Calvin O'Neill, one of our, uh, you know, our, our top uh, captains in Michigan history lives in Shreveport, you know, former NFL uh, for the Baltimore Colts linebacker. Uh, in Shreveport, he's got, you know, Josh got a couple guys down there that are, these are, one of them is a kid of Marion Walker, reminds me of uh, of Anthony Carter. And uh, he's just a junior this year. But, you know, he's already been offered by Alabama, been offered by, by uh, Clemson. And I think what we can do is, and the first thing Ed told me, well, that's Josh's guy. Because he's a passing game. Eddie coaches, you know, he recruits the linemen, and uh, Josh recruits that. And I think they're going to coexist really well. As a matter of fact, I'm real excited about their offense this year. Even though he's got to replace that whole offensive line, he's got some studs behind there coming back. And I think Mayfield's going to be a, you know, one of the top guys. There's a young kid named uh, Andrew Vistardis who's just a just a journeyman walk-on that's going to get some playing time. And I know uh, been watching him. That kid played 50 plays in a row in the spring game a couple of years ago mm. as a walk-up because uh, they ran out of guards, you know. And I, I had to do that when I was a guard. And so uh, I know his, I know his, uh, his uh, uncle real well. So I, I just said, you know, I mean, they, they try playing 50 plays in a row in a football game. Okay? So the kid's tough as nails, but he's not going to be a starter, but he's certainly going to be a backup guard in the center or a starter uh, center possibly. But Ed will figure it out. And uh, he's probably the best line coach in America. I really believe that. Uh, I'm, I'm very encouraged by Josh and, and the fact that they're going to work together. And I know that, uh, it, you know, looking at what Don Brown's doing on defense with, with his, his, new, his new coaches coming in, and it appears they're doing well together, at least what I hear inside Ann Arbor, is that, uh, yeah, these guys are tired of losing, man, you know, championships. They're not losing – losing records they're just not michigan i mean there's 42 big banners you know big 10 banners when i walk into the uh, the practices and the last one you know the youngest kid that's got a, a, a rose bowl ring or big 10 championship ring right now is like 33 years old you know and he's a freshman on that team back in 2004 so do, do the math on that and, and the seniors are approaching 40 off that team and uh and, and you know, it, you know, it's, it's time. You know, it's time to restore the roar, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, it, <laughs> yes, you know. I, I'm with you on that, John Arbesnik. Now, you were a two-time All Big Ten 
offensive lineman in 78, 79. You just talked about it a little bit there. They do have to replace. Talked about the good news was, yeah, they had four guys that went in the draft, but now you're going to have 80% of that offensive line. Now, maybe they won't have to deal with uh, – if they do have a game in Washington, uh, if they do fly out there, if if there's no crowd, they're not going to have to, you know, deal with that communication. But they're still, you know, going to have to work together. How much of a – I think that's kind of burying the lead. I'm talking about defense, offense, and, you know, quarterback and everything else. But, you know, four-fifths of the offensive line they have to replace, that's a pretty big deal, at least on the outside looking in. Harbaugh would hate me saying this, and Bo would absolutely – you know, if Bo were alive, what I'm about to say, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I'd be called in his office at 63 years old. Believe me, <laughs> he'd be he'd be there saying, "What are you talking about?" But I, you know, that Washington game's a tough one. I know Chris Peterson because he recruited kids that uh, I knew when uh, when uh, when Mike Bond, the athletic director of Colorado, went up to Boise State. He picked the wrong coach. He, he brings back Dan Hawkins. He should have hired. Uh, he should have hired Chris Peterson, but I met Chris, uh, some of the kids he was recruiting out for my high school team. And Chris, the act of a football coach, uh, but I, I think, did he just leave? Because yeah. I was reading, he just left, but he's got a, he's a great recruiter, so they're, they're, that table's not empty. Uh, you know, I mean, they are, the refrigerator and that pantry are loaded with athletes. And that'd be a tough place to start. And Seattle's always been a tough place from, you know, it's just such a long flight and a, it's certainly you almost want to go out there three or four or five days in advance. You know, I mean, it's it's a it's always tough to win on the West Coast uh, when you're, you're. It's tough on them, by the way, going the other way. You know, you, and next year we'll get them there, but it's tough when it's uh, the game starts at noon in the old days and it's nine o'clock in the morning on their body clock. Yeah, body clock. You know. Yeah, uh, Jimmy it, Jimmy Lake. Uh, I think he was uh, along with Peterson at Boise, so he's been a lifelong, uh, you know, he's been there at Washington. He's the guy that's taken over now. I know he was with the Lions for a minute as a DB coach, so he'll have his, uh, you know, that first-time head coach. You know, he was with Peterson under there. He's got a great – got a great staff up there. They got – you know, I mean, even though Chris uh, – Chris, Chris has got – it's a solid program, believe me. And, and it's almost like when Bo left and Gary Moeller took over. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, it, it, they all know each other. It, it's going to go swimmingly. There wasn't a regime change there. I mean, that program ain't broke, believe me. Uh, and I think what's going to be interesting if, if that would be a heck of a, that's going to be a tough game. I can tell you that right now. Uh, it, it would be a very difficult game, especially with a young offensive line that uh, doesn't have a, lot, a great amount of playing time. But if any coach could pull off a line, it's going to be Ed Warner because I'm sold on it. Ed Warner's. Uh, you know, half my time I've been trying to you know make sure that he, he doesn't leave. You know, every conversation I've had with Roy Emanuel is you know make sure you take care of Ed because uh, you know it's so hard to find a guy like him. Uh, it, this is a great, great football coach you got coaching your offensive line. He reminds me of Jerry Hamlin, and I can put him in the same class as Alice Gibb, who who basically invented inside-outside zone for the Denver Broncos in their Super Bowls. You know, that it, it, I can say that, that Ed Warner is that. Jerry Hamlin, one of the greatest, Marv Goo at USC. He's one of those great coaches. He, he truly is. And I'm very happy that, you know, he and Josh get to, you know, get to get their opinions heard together. And Ed's a team guy, too. Believe me, he'll have no trouble working with Josh. And I think Josh is the same way. He's a Wake Forest kid, played for one of the great coaches in history. Uh, great player, all, all ACC plays. Uh, this is, I like the dynamic. I, this is the best staff 
I think we've had since, uh, you know, since uh, the Moeller and Bo days and Lloyd Carr days. I mean, you got a serious staff now. I mean, you go back three generations, three coaches. You're, you're, you got it now. So I just, I feel really good about the season, but until Paul Pybaum says that now they're move everything back a little bit because he's testing positive. So if we could somehow if that game gets canceled, I wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt me because I wouldn't mind opening up with uh, Ball State and then uh, Arkansas State. <laughs> No, you know no. that would give us a month or so to figure out, you know, our blocking and everything. If that makes any sense to you? No, it does. I got a bunch of things to ask you, and I just thought about, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, the time you sent, uh, your time you spent in Colorado, and just talking about offensive line. I know that's where you played, and I just thought about the the Super Bowl this year and in the, the zone blocking and and Kyle Shanahan, just the the different backs, and and now how it looked like Green Bay. You know, they're trying to, to, to follow, and it's a, you know, the copycat league they always talk about. And, you know, back in the days when the Broncos were producing those thousand yard rushers, that was, you know, Mike Shanahan, and the, well, they were talking about cut blocking or zone blocking. Do you think that's going to be more of, of, uh, of what offensive lines, offensive line coaches, I know, I think they're going to do that in the NFL, you know, go to more, more zone blocking? What, what's it take when it comes down to that? You know? Well, let me, actually, zone blocking now. Is uh, 22 years old, 20 or 23 years old. Uh, it's not a modern offense anymore for a blocking scheme at all. And, and you know, I got to tell you how it happened. I got a great story about that because I was at a Nike clinic and I was up for assistant coach of the year in Colorado, and I got to meet the great Alex Gibb. And he asked me if I wanted to have a drink with him, and I did. And, he, and I got to be able to afterwards, and, and we discussed zone blocking. And what was really cool about that was I didn't understand it at all because they didn't play it when I played, you know, and, and even at New Orleans when I was there for one, you know, with, with a cup of coffee uh, with the great Dick Stanfield, who was an line coach in New Orleans who just went into the NFL Hall of Fame from the, from the Bears in the old days. Uh, and, and here's the thing he told me. He, he, he was the offensive, uh, co-offensive coordinator then uh, with the Denver Broncos, and he kind of developed it because – he knew that he had a small line and he had a great line. He had probably had the best center uh, in NFL history, in my opinion, who probably should go in the NFL. He had uh, a kid from Boston College. Uh, and then you had, you know, they had Gary Zimmerman, who was one of the great all pros that he was able to pick up in free agency. And David Diaz and Fani, and uh, they had, uh, that, that team was there, but he thought they were very quick, okay? And what zone blocking does is it gives you basically a gap block, and so you always have the angle, you know. And there's inside and outside zone, and the difference is where the point of attack is. And and what they do in, in zone blocking, if it, it, it hurts to work, you have to have a tailback like Terrell Davis, who's probably well. He only spent five years in the NFL. He's in the Hall of Fame, and there's a reason he is. He's like Gail Sayers. This guy could absolutely run and cut, and he was big out of the University of Georgia, and then they had Alandis Gary behind them and Mike Anderson. Yep. I mean, some great running backs that, that, could, that not only understood that, but everybody had their own gap. But the key of zone blocking is the, the two cut back, the, the block, the crackback receivers. You got to, and he had, he had Eddie McCaffrey, you know, so that you were talking about, you know, Dylan and Christian's dad. And he had Rod Smith, who, who kept getting cut by Shanahan and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Alex kept bringing him back. I think he got cut four or five times, and even the Ring of Honor endeavor. Those guys were killing 
uh, crackback. Well, thank you.